Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm your host, Rob Kent. As you know, I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, which is available, as always, as a paperback, an audiobook, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening or watching this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, for more information about me and more important, more information about uh, publishing with interviews with literary agents, editors, authors, all the world's best people, everything that's good in life is available at middlegradeninja.com. Head there and you can also read a seven question interview uh, with today's extraordinary guest. I uh, couldn't be more thrilled to welcome Holly McGee. Uh, also known as Haley Durand occasionally, or mostly Holly McGee all the, all the time now. <laughs> Nowadays, it's Holly M. McGee. Um, I, I was Holly Durand when I first started out, and I was didn't want anyone to know I was both an agent and an author. And then I, I grew up, and I realized all of those things are parts of who I am. And I integrated all the parts of my life. So... I no longer write under Hallie Durand, but I love the books I wrote under her name. Um, but you can find everything now under Holly McGee. Well, I definitely want to dive into the story of, of, of having to have a pen name for your first book because you had already become such a well-established uh, literary agent. Mm -hmm. um, probably the best spot to start is to let esteemed audience know uh, that if they're listening to this episode as it comes out, or even a few days after, they still have time to sign up for your launch party for What the World Could Make. That's happening May 4th uh, at, at 5 p.m. Tell esteemed audience who all is going to be at the party and what they can look forward to. Okay, sure. I happen to have a copy of the book we're going to be talking about. So it's called What the World Could Make. It looks backward on your screen, but I don't know. So it's called What the World Can Make, and it's illustrated by my dear friend, Belgian friend, Pascal Lemaitre. Um, it's our third collaboration together. And this book stemmed from um, a series of dreams I had with my client, Kate DiCamillo, who was one of my first clients and one of my best known clients. Also one of my best friends at this point has been about 20 years. Um, and in the dreams, um, each year when I had one, a particularly powerful dream about her, Pascal would draw the dream and he created us as bunnies and I would give it to her for Christmas. And this started over a decade ago. And then um, in the past couple of years, somehow the bunnies he drew, um, he drew us as in the dreams I relayed to him, uh, morphed into a story. And um, with Kate's permission, I said, you know, am I allowed to use the bunnies? Because I felt like they were her bunnies and she felt like they were my bunnies. And she was delighted that they were going to have another life. Um, and so this is the first of the bunny books, and you could see us on the back. So her name is Rabbit, and she has the more pointy ears. And my name is Bunny. It's not that imaginative, <laughs> but it felt right. And I have the rounder ears, and it's sort of our view of life and the world and the abundance 
um, that can be found in the everyday world. Um, and we're, we're just together through these books and we're planning to do two more of them. And so she will be joining us at our launch party um, because she's so much a part of the story of how this book came to be. And it's hosted by Schuler Books, which is a bookstore in Michigan, um, together with their neighbor independent bookstore, Nicholas Books. And it'll be the first time, usually we have a big fancy launch party in New York City, but we can't do that this year. Um, I bought some special pants to wear, which I thought COVID would be over by now, but I'm planning to still wear the pants and I'm not going to reveal them until the night of the party. Um, but it's at 5 p.m. Eastern time on May 4th, our publication day. And you can find me, Holly McGee, on Facebook and you'll see a posting about the book or you can go to Schuler Books on Facebook and find out how to get onto the live event and it should be um, not so much a kid, not the most kid-friendly event in the world, but it's going to be a very exciting conversation about the origins of the story. Well, check out the uh, show notes, esteemed audience. I won't let you down. I'll make sure I link to it and I'll be there. Um, wouldn't wouldn't miss it. This sounds like it's going to be an amazing party. I think so. I think it'll be great. And we have a wonderful moderator who was one of the founding members of Studio 360 on NPR, and she has moderated all our past two events. And she always agrees graciously um, because she loves working with us to come and host these events. And so we never know what question will be asked. And that's part of the fun. Nothing is rehearsed ahead of time. And so it's typically a pretty um, organic and free-flowing conversation where we never know what's going to happen. And so uh, there's going to be you said two more books. Will you be writing both of those? Or is Kate Dicamillo going to write one? And, and Nope, they're all mine. They're, um, they'll all be written by me. And the next one is about love. Um, this one is about hope. And um, Kate is just sort of our fairy godmother in the whole in the whole scenario. I uh, read the book with my son, my my, my first grader. Uh, he was an enthusiastic fan, uh, so we read it a couple of times. And, uh, we enjoyed it very much. Um, the uh, it's a I'm trying to think what the what the word is for it's a, it's it's there's very few pages. Well, I guess one question I had as I was reading it for you, just um, just about the writing, uh, is there are not a great deal of words per page, but there are some words that were uh, challenging almost for me to to say a couple of the colors out loud. Um, and you know, and I'm I'm supposed to be uh, <laughs> at the very least literate <laughs> at this at this point in my life. And I wondered as you were doing that, is that an opportunity to um, challenge younger readers to go and learn new words? Not at all. I, I wonder what words you were stuck on, Rob, because there aren't that many hard ones in this book. <laughs> like fuchsia, was that a word you didn't know? 
Uh, no, if you, I knew all the words. There was, oh, you know what? Now I've got to pull up the uh, the arc that she sent me again, and I can tell you exactly. <laughs> um, I never think about the words. I'm not someone who would ever be able to write a ready-to-read book, or and I I don't publish a lot of books, so I I try to. If I was writing about lilacs, I just try to think about what they look like. And I, I do think my picture books are really for all ages. They're not funny kid books. Sometimes I wish they were, but they're sort of more philosophical. Um, and so I never, I guess if my editor told me I couldn't use a word, I would take it out. But no one's ever challenged me on the descriptive words I use. Uh, well, here's one, um, and it's one that I knew, but a ginkgo carpet to behold, um, which rhymes perfectly, of course, with the magical kingdom of gold. Um, but that's that, actually my favorite line in the whole book. That is a word I hadn't uh, encountered in. I don't think I've ever encountered it in a picture book, but that I don't I don't read a great deal of picture books now that my little one has uh, moved on to the chapter books. Uh, let's see. So was it the word ginkgo? Uh -huh, that word. And there was one for, I think it was for Brown, that was just a, an unusual word that I thought, oh, well, there's something that I felt like might be a little bit above and beyond the usual picture book, which I liked. And then, of course, the overall concept uh, of the book of getting a gift from the earth and, and then giving that gift uh, to your friend. Spoilers, <laughs> which I, I assume uh, spoilers are, are, are maybe OK uh, for a picture book, uh, but maybe not. Maybe I'll have to edit all of this out. <laughs> I think spoilers are always OK, because who knows if we so well. Uh, um, OK, so. I live in Manhattan half the time and in New Jersey half the time. And on the front lawn of our old house was a giant ginkgo tree. And they, the leaves that you see in the book, the yellow leaves every fall, the entire lawn is just covered with leaves that look like this. And it's a particular kind of tree. It doesn't have the typical red, orange, and yellow and green of a maple tree, but this is exactly what it looks like. And every fall, as my children, when my children are older now, they're in their teens, and one, my oldest one is 22. Um, but every fall, the, our entire front lawn was covered in yellow ginkgo leaves. And so that was just something I thought was so beautiful and it came to me naturally and I wasn't trying to teach anybody about the ginkgo tree. Although now that you mention it, where I grew up in upstate New York, I never saw a ginkgo, but in Essex County, New Jersey, there's lots of ginkgos. So, um, yeah, it's a, I think every, everyone should get to experience a ginkgo and maybe they can through those spreads in the book. And then um, this, uh, uh, this idea of a forever memory, not one that goes on uh, forever, but that, that lasts forever. Um, do you have those memories with Kate? I'm, I was trying to figure out how we got from 
a dream about you and Kate in a roller coaster uh, to two bunnies uh, giving each other gifts? I think we do. I mean, we we've had um, so many. Did I send you the letter that I wrote to go with the book? Yes. Yeah. So Kate and I, over the years, um, we've had so many shared experiences and they're part of how we became close, right? And so, um, and then they appear in our dreams. Um, but it was only because I appeared in she I appeared in some of her dreams and she appeared in some of mine and the first few that I, I asked Pascal to illustrate because I wanted to give her a gift for Christmas that was meant something to her because she can get whatever she wants, right? I couldn't like get her a blender or a Vitamix or a so I wanted something that represented our friendship and Pascal decided to draw them as bunnies. Um, and so it became this tradition like many years ago. And then I'd say in the last, I think it was two years ago, um, <laughs> she, cause each year I'd say, you know, cause I wanted to know, did she still want, and I would frame them for her and she hang them on her wall and I, you know, that could become a burden to receive a framed gift if you, if you don't want to hang it on your wall, right? And I, and we're pretty frank with each other. And I said, you know, is this still something you want to keep doing? Or is your wall full? And I, I phrased it in a way that it would be very easy for her to say, I love them, but you've t taken up all the wall space you can have. Right, because her house isn't that big, and but that then that year she, she actually had a dream about me, and she told me that was what she wanted Pascal to illustrate that year. So then I knew she was really in it for the long haul, and um, you know, one year, one year, I think with my book come with me, Kirkus Review did they really didn't like that book and they had some, and it's done quite well, but they took a very hard position on it. And, you know, Kate taught me that we have to release these, we have to release this energy into the universe, right? We can't dwell on what Kirkus thought and Kirkus loves my new book, but they don't like, you know, they like what they like and they, so she came to my house and we had a little ceremony on my deck and we burned the Kirkus Review with sage and we released it into the universe just so that it wasn't like part of us and didn't affect our feeling about who, who or at least for me, who I was in the world and as a writer. And it was so important to do. And so that year, the bunny image that wasn't from a dream. That was the two of us burning this 
review at my home. <laughs> so, you know, it's just there, it, the bunnies really represent our friendship. And I think a lot of times when you read a, a picture book about um, two characters, they have their kind of opposites, right? And they find a way to meet up and tolerate each other or see the world from each other's perspective. And that's like a traditional arc of a picture book and extremely important and valid. But in in the books about these bunnies, or as Kirkus said about what the world could make, they called them legomorphs, which I was extremely happy to learn a new word from them. And um, I've been having a lot of fun using the term legomorphs, which means bunnies. Uh, but I didn't know that two weeks ago. And um, so in these books, our two bunnies, they share the same sensibility of the world. And I think that's a little bit unusual because they're not trying to come to a meeting of the minds and tolerate each other. They already see the world the same way, but they have different ways of expressing it. And they look in wonder at everything the world could make. So I, that's not something I see that often. And I didn't, I didn't intend to write a book um, that way. But you know, these sometimes the, the words come up and through you, and then you look at what you have on the paper, and you can see things about your own story that make sense. And that's how it is with me and Kate. Well, in that same vein, uh, something in that letter you mentioned uh, about the about the book is that you had uh, you and Kate DiCamillo had both purchased the same pillow sham and comforter, and took that to be a hint at the mystery of the universe. So, what uh, what what mystery of the universe are are we talking about, or is it, <laughs> is it is is it not identifiable because it is the mystery of the universe, and and how often? Um, do you do you do you get these uh, hints, or are you able to see these these little tantalizing uh, tidbits? Oh, I see, you know I see them all the time, but I've been I've been open to them for a very long time. Um, but with Kate, that one was particularly powerful because I had bought this comforter that I mean at the time. I think I was, it was a few years ago and I had made the decision that I was going to leave my husband and I had moved up to the third floor and I wanted like something that looked kind of, I don't, I don't know, like all our good comforters and stuff were downstairs, but I, I just wanted something different and, and. I, I don't know, I went to Wayfair. It was somewhere where I don't normally shop. It was like a super quick decision. And I think people were coming to look at my archive and I needed it to look kind of, I can't say professional is the wrong word, but just neat and tidy. I bought this comforter and these shams. And um, it was like a pattern. I mean, this story is, you, you could totally cut me off. Um, so I bought this and I've had it up there and it was like 
nothing I would normally buy because I was at a really different place in my life. And then I went out to, I took my, I decided my youngest, when I seemed like he needed to assume more responsibility than he was at the time. So I showed him these images of Outward Bound and he didn't realize that Outward Bound was like really hard and <laughs> rugged and he thought it looked really fun and I had to take him out to Duluth, Minnesota. That's where his trip to the Boundary Waters was taking place and so I wanted to see Kate while I was out there and also my sister lives out there. So I dropped him in Duluth and <laughs> he made it through but he never wants to go back. Um, <laughs> it didn't change his life the way we thought it would, but he like learned quite a lot, um, especially that he was not um, sensitive to mosquito bites, which is was a huge plus for being in the Boundary Waters. Um, so I went to Kate's house and I just did a double take. She had the exact same comforter and I, I just, it was hard to believe. And I even tried to have her research the day she bought it, because I think we bought it on almost the same day, but she couldn't find her receipt. And you know, I can be super obsessive, so I just let that one go. But then this past year, I mean, this is the weird, weirdest part that I did not include in that letter. My sister, not my sister, Allison, who's the writer, my other sister lives in New Hampshire. She called me and she said, I, and she hadn't been to my New York apartment. And she said, I, from the pictures you've shown, I have the perfect thing for you. I bought it. It doesn't fit in my house. I think it's going to be perfect for your apartment. And she packed it up and mailed it to me. And I opened it and it was the same comforter the exact same comforter and this is over the course of two years and I, I think what um, I, I've had so many experiences that point to the symmetries and the I don't think they're coincidences the the the, the synchronicities of the universe and I've had enough hints about them and I don't proclaim to understand them, but I respect them. And I have one here on my desk, actually. This one, I was in my analyst's office and we were talking about time and time was, um, I wanted to write, I still do, I plan to write a book about time and how the idea of being out of time and I think the pandemic has kind of been part of that because we're all sort of out of time. Like think, is it Thursday, is tonight Thursday? You actually have to think about it, right? Because all these days have been bleeding together. And at the exact same time I was talking to her about time, I then went to, um, and I was talking about being on the wings of a mythical bird on top of time and how you could flow through time. And I went to, this was way before the pandemic, I went to meet a friend for lunch at a hotel in, on um, 57th Street. As soon as I got there, I was waiting in the lobby for my friend. 
and Pascal, my collaborator, had sent me this image. And it was exactly the image I had talked about with my analysts, this about this bird flying on the, you know, this mythical bird flying on the wings of time. And so these things have happened to me long enough that I am fascinated. I don't plan to devote my life to trying to understand them, but I know there's a whole different world there that most of us don't have access to. And a few of us who are lucky get a little bit of a hint at. Um, and like Kate and I call that other. It's like we just put all that under the category of other because those are things you don't encounter when you go to put your toast in the toaster in the morning, right? But if you're quiet and you pay attention, you can see more and more of them. It is one thing that uh, among among many that motivates me to continue to write uh, is those little glimpses of, of something greater than yourself uh, that I experience and I think most writers uh, experience uh, unless they're writing, I don't know, uh, nonfiction manual or something. <laughs> but even then, well, even then, that can be the same, right? You, uh, you always want to know the world is larger than your experience of it. And sometimes by writing about your particular detailed specific experience of the world you're pointing to something that's universal to everybody and i think those are like those those are the things that make the best work you know i've i'd always been taught the more specific and detailed you are the more universal your message and not everybody understands that but you can tell a very simple story very detailed about a very particular thing that happened and it can speak to an incredibly big message and you don't have to use big words to do it um but you know the more specific and detailed your anecdote is oftentimes the more universal it, the message is so um so much to to ask you about. I don't even know where to begin. Cause I wanna I wanna start with the founding of, of Pippin Properties in 1998. Then you meet uh, Kate DiCamillo in 2000. But before we get there, I am curious because you, your your sister uh, is a writer. Is your other sister? Is she does she write sometimes and just hasn't published, or is she not interested at all? And I'm wondering about what kind of house, what kind of situation produces a a family of writers and, and agents and and writers. And there's there's a brother there too. Um, there's four of us. Um, so um, my sister Laurel, who's calls herself the middle child because it was the three girls, and my brother was six years later. So it, he had kind of a different experience growing up, where there was a little bit more money. There was times weren't as hard, and he was the long-awaited boy right so um he had privileges he doesn't see it that way but we know how we grew up and we know how he grew up and six years can make a big difference um but we love him and he loves us um so laurel is actually an amazing writer but she never writes anything um she's hilarious and if she decided to sit down and do something, I'm sure 
you know, sometimes we have we have a group chat on um, our phones and we can all make each other laugh so hard. Allison um, can make me laugh so hard. I can make her laugh so hard that sometimes it's all three of us. Sometimes it's all four of us. Um, and so we really grew up in um, far upstate New York two hours west of Albany on 150 acres of land. Our father inspected um, barns to make sure that farmers weren't trying to, that the amount of milk they sold was the same, the amount of milk they charged for was the same amount that came out of their bulk tank in their farm. Um, and then he inspected barns for cleanliness and then he, and he had some more logistical jobs at the league, the dairy league he worked for. Um, my mom was a school teacher, high school math. Um, I had her for geometry, which was a horrible experience. <laughs> it was a small school. And, you know, it's the kind of childhood where, you know, you make your bed, you lie in it. If you... You you had to um, if you asked for something you then had to be willing to like use it all up or deal with the consequences or it was a it was a pretty strict and disciplined life except for the things we got away away with that they didn't know about um, and then I I think. Um, probably from the time I was 12 years old, I knew that I didn't want to live in the country. And I, you know, I started selling corn on Route 12 out of a red pickup truck to start saving money to get the kind of things I wanted, which weren't luxurious, but they're just things my parents couldn't afford, like a pair of white pants I wanted or, so we were very hard workers. We, um, none of us stayed in the country. It's kind of interesting. My parents still live in the house we grew up in and they just turned 85. Um, and all that said, my mom grew up in Manhattan and she couldn't wait to move to the country. So, you know, it's to each his own, right? Um, so I don't know what they did that created these, um, create these imaginative children, but something. Were you, uh, big readers as children? We were all big readers, big readers. And we also were never entertained by anybody. Very few people came over. We were five miles out of town. So I think that's a very important point. We had to entertain ourselves. And, you know, we always had kittens. We'd make kitten villages with our Barbie houses and play school on the stairs and play. We always played the newlywed game and there were only four of us. It was my brother and the three sisters and someone was going to be the newlywed to someone <laughs> and he had to answer all the questions. So we just had so we 
look and we'd watch TV without it on and look at our reflections and make up our own TV shows. And it was kind of for lack of having things, you know, and my brother was younger, so he had Atari and he had, he had th those kind of games, which we never had. Um, there was a lot of Scrabble, a lot of, um, I don't know if we had Yahtzee, there's tons of Scrabble, a lot of the game of life, a lot of board games, a lot of fighting with my grandmother over Scrabble and her, if we took too long to make our word, she'd start yelling, I smell wood burning, meaning your head was full of wood. Um, it was in some ways a life that isn't imaginable now because some of the stuff that happened a kid nowadays will call the police for. <laughs> like, you know, if you were so insulted <laughs> for your slow thinking, but um, it was very normal back then. And um, so I think part of it was the lack of noise around us that made us create our own worlds. So from there, you're 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 by the the side of the road when the pickup truck selling corn. How do you get from there to opening your own publishing industry in, in 1998? Is just straight to New York? Get me the first job of publishing I can find. What are the steps that you take? Oh, I can tell you. So I um, so I went to college and. I didn't know what to do after my senior year. I had a boyfriend I really liked who was in graduate school at the, my same college. And we had this house where we shared with a couple other people. Um, but And I worked at the golf course. I worked in the snack bar. I always liked playing. Back then, I, I haven't played golf in years, but I had, uh, supposedly I had a very sweet swing I took golf and because you where I went to college, you had to have a gym class. So I took golf and it turned out I was really good at it. So we're to the golf course in the snack bar. I was kind of trying to figure out who I was and what I wanted to do. And um, the only thing I could think of that I wanted to do was to work in publishing because I had done an internship in New York City my junior year. Um, at the account, the Council of Literary Magazines, and it wasn't even the stories I was reading or any of that. It was the feeling. I it was a feeling of it was the idea that I felt like myself around the people I worked with, and that was kind of a new feeling to me. It's like, oh, I can just be myself and make whatever nerdy jokes I want to make because everybody thinks I'm funny and 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 I, I wasn't didn't have to try at all and so I thought I wanted to go in publishing and I answered a call from a headhunter when I was up in Ithaca New York and I also knew I wanted to live in New York City that was very clear um and I told them that I wanted to work in publishing. And this headhunter um, started sending me on job interviews. And 
he sent me on one interview to the American Bible Society. And he said that they published a scripture in 1700 languages. And it would be my, like, I'd have my foot in the door of publishing because of that. And it was in um, near Columbus Circle. And so I went to the interview and they asked me, do you like writing letters and signing someone else's name? And I said, of course, <laughs> not. And he asked me a bunch of questions. And um, like, I'm not a, I'm not a non-religious person, but I'm not a religious person. Like, I know there are things bigger than all of us. I'm, I'm not an atheist, but I, I'm definitely not someone who goes to church every Sunday. So I took this job. And after the, um, and then the headhunter got me the job, started taking me to art galleries and offering me like marijuana and different kind of drugs. And this is the fellow that, that got you hooked up with the Bible job. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> it's, just yeah. There. <laughs> it's in the 80s. It's in the late 80s. Okay. So things were different then. He'd be sued today. So he said, and I, you know, I started seeing this part of New York. It's like, oh, there's art galleries. And, and I was very much a farm girl, right? So I had good taste, but I, I didn't know New York very well. And then I started really hating my job. And anytime, if I got there at 9, 10, they would make me stay till 5, 10. And it was that kind of job that was you punched your like time card and you had your 20 minute breaks. And I had to like try to help raise funds for the Bible Society. So after one month, I started sending my resume out and my headhunter found out. And he said, um, I hear your resume is on the street. And at that point, I would you know, type my resume, print it out, put it in an envelope and put it in the like post box. <laughs> this is like a long time ago, right? With a stamp, I'd circle ads I wanted in the New York Times and or jobs I wanted. And um, that's when I started understanding how the world worked. Because if I didn't stay in my job for three months, he wouldn't get his commission. And so then everything started making sense. And I was so innocent and green. I didn't really get it before then. And so he was taking me out and all this stuff. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't think I was cute or whatever, but he needed me to stay there three months, right? Oh, I couldn't have be both. He, he thought you were lovely and he wanted to make sure he got his commission. Yeah, <laughs> probably the latter. Um, but um, so... I, after one month, I quit, and I had answered an ad, and I ended up working for this amazing person who's now 74 years old. He's retired. He's still my very good friend. He's a mentor to me, um, and I was his secretary at Harper, and I worked for him for a couple of years, and then... Uh, after a few more years, 
I got into children's books, but I didn't, I, the first few years of my career, I had nothing to do with children's books. Um, and then Michael DiCapua asked me to come with him back to Harper and work with him on his imprint. And I got to know Maurice Sendak and some of these super brilliant creators of picture books. Um, so I did that for six years. And then the reason I left was um, that, that I started wanting to publish books for my own list. And I'd bring projects I really love to the acquisitions meeting. And people would vote against them. And it really didn't rub me the right way because I believed in them. And so at that point, I'd been, at, I'd been doing it for six or seven years. And I just thought, you know, I'd rather succeed or fail on my own taste than have someone else tell me what I can buy. And so I opened the door at Pippin. And, you know, back then there really weren't very many children's we we don't just do children's books anymore, but it was very focused on children's, and there weren't there weren't very many agencies like that. And um, so I took the plunge, and it it uh, turned out that a lot of people liked the same things I did, and wanted to publish them, and I didn't have to deal with an acquisition committee anymore, except that like a project I might send would go to that committee, but I didn't have to be in the room. And um, that's how that's how Pippin started. And it was just, I was all by myself for three years. I know that now, of course, Pippin is where you're right across the street from uh, Park. Uh, you're, you're, I mean, you're, you're quintessentially in New York, right? Yeah. Uh, where uh, where did you start back in 98? So I worked out of my apartment um, for the first year. And then I had just gotten married and I got pregnant. And I did spend probably the first year after my son was born. The nanny would be in the living room. It was like a one... It was a pretty large one-bedroom apartment, but she'd be in the living room and I'd be in my bedroom and I'd play classical music to drown out the baby crying. And clients would come over and they, the place, and it was, it's all, I mean, it's all so cute to think about now because we're like so much more professional now, but it was quite something. So if my clients came for a meeting, they would their place they had to sit was on the edge of my bed, and I had my desk, and that's where we had our meetings. <laughs> it was just how we did it, and that that went on for a little bit, and then obviously that couldn't last too long. And then I think for the next probably the next eight years we I got this condo on 38th street a small office condo and that was like a place to go and we moved to a larger apartment and that was a place to 
like that's where our office was until about this was about eight years ago we moved up to bryant park and have plenty of space now and a lot more people working for us and um but it, it was pretty homey for a really long time it's still kind of homey well what uh We've got lots of questions about about Pippin because you're 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 going to go on to become a, a juggernaut in children's publishing. I mean, for for God's <laughs> sake, anybody that wants to pull up your client list, uh, we've mentioned uh, Kate DiCamillo, previous guest, Kathy Appelt, uh, Catherine Applegate, Jonathan Mayberry. Uh, there's too many names here for me to go through and and, and name all of these amazing uh, writers that you've you've represented. Um, when did you have a feeling that okay, this was something I was doing out of my apartment, but this is this is a this I I what's the equivalent of I've made it for uh, being a literary agent? When did you feel confident that that the Pippin Industries was was going to be around for um, uh, all the way up until present? You know, I can't say I ever felt that way. It was I'm not a I don't have a business degree. I have a lot of friends who a lot of people tell me I should have been a lawyer because I'm very detail oriented and I like logic, but I also have this creative side. So I have like these two different parts and I, you know, I, I have to, I remember talking. So my client, Peter H. Reynolds is very dear to me. And we talked um, at one point about his book, The Dot, which has sold over a million copies. It was started, this grassroots movement was started by TJ Shea, this incredible music teacher in Iowa. And, you know, Peter would talk about when he wins the lottery. And I remember one day, we have these like pretty intense conversations fairly often. And I said, you know, do you realize you already won the lottery? Like you, you won. And then I realized like I had too. And it's just, you know, you're going about your day, you're on your email, you try to clear your inbox out, you're, have really important emails and then another email where an editor is asking you for your author's address and you're please why are you asking me for that like please ask my assistant it's gonna be like, i have to go look at and so like regular life doesn't change even with such great success right you still are the person you were um, and so I can't say I ever had that feeling. However, when I look at the careers of what we've, and, and it's a lot, it's mostly talent, but it's also great management because you can be incredibly talented and not have a great agent and you're not going to end up where some of our clients have ended up, right? So you look at a Jason Reynolds or like when we took over Catherine Applegate or how Kate DiCamillo's career has been managed or Peter Reynolds or, you, you know, the, like it's nothing happens if you're not 
an incredible genius, but nothing can happen if you are a genius without the right management. So I can kind of see, I can see for my clients and our clients and my colleagues' clients, I can see what's possible. Um, but it's not often I step back to think like, oh, I started this whole thing. I don't, I just don't really think like that, you know? Sounds better than winning the lottery to me because you win the lottery, they put it in the paper, then you've got uh, relatives from way back when that you haven't talked to in forever. So <laughs> I see you've suddenly come into a bunch of money. Whereas <laughs> not only I assume there's 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 some money involved, uh, but also uh, you're 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 getting to I assume there's there's got to be this feeling of tremendous satisfaction when you look at your client list, when you look at some of the books that you've helped bring to the world and bring to young readers. That has to be an enormous feeling of, um, of, of, of satisfaction uh, with with what you've done with this life. Yeah, it's been a call. I'd say it's been a calling. It's something I haven't grown tired of. Um, I I I love words and pictures. And, you know, I have a, I have a, let me just show you, I have something. Um, I can't tell you what it is, but this is like what I'm going to spend my weekend doing. Can't show you the name. And this is a huge, huge thing by one of my favorite writers of all time clients and I'm very excited to read it. Um, so it's not easy to juggle all the reading and things with, you know, having a family. I have three children, but it's been a great way to spend my life. Yeah. So what uh, you mentioned um, you need that great management, which of course everybody who's who's listening should immediately be uh, formulating their query for for Pippin Properties. Uh, maybe not you, because I know that's very rare anymore that you will take on a, a new client. Uh, but you've got several other uh, great folks uh, working for you. In fact, let's start there, and then uh, let's. I want to I want to get this idea of what makes great management for a genius, which every everyone who listens to this show obviously is a literary genius. They just need to get that, that great management that, that's going to help them out. Um, so go on just right through the structure that's that's on your website. There's you there at the top. And then uh, next up, you've got, is it Elena? G How do I say Elena's last name? Giovanazzo. And so she is vice president and senior agent. So we'll, we'll just go down the list. Her, Sarah Crow, uh, Ashley Valentine. Uh, what what roles are each of them playing? How how does Pippin function? Okay, so the main the main three agents are Elena and Sarah and um, I. Um, so I my list is very full. Um, once in a great while, I take on someone new, like. Um, I actually have her books and sometimes publishers have been sending things to my apartment. So this is like an YA debut author I took on. The book is called A Breath Too Late, um, but very, very seldom. And somebody else reads my query box and I only take exclusive queries. So 
I don't um, want to compete with anyone else. If somebody really wants me, they have to submit to me exclusively and give me, I think it's six weeks. And there's someone who weeds out my query box. And if it's something they think I want to read, they pass it on to me. So that's how, that's the truth of how it works with me. Because um, I want to have enough time to spend helping the people I already represent. And I never want to shortchange anybody or miss a step because every single step counts. And you never know you have a bad contract until you have a best-selling book. And then you're going to see everything that's wrong with your contract. And most people never have a best-selling book. They never find out all the lazy steps somebody may have taken in negotiating their deal. But if you have a best-selling book, which we hope all the geniuses listening to your show have, you need to have the best contract you can possibly have. So then comes Elena, who has been at Pippin for, oh my goodness, I think it's 11 years. I think this year we're going to celebrate our 12th. We have, we celebrate our anniversary every June 18th because she started as our assistant and she was so eager to learn the business. And she, she had some experience in publishing. She had a bit of experience in marketing and audiobooks, maybe five years. But she was so eager to learn, she absorbed every bit of information she could and took on some clients who came our way who, like, she got the chance on certain people like Jason Reynolds and Catherine Applegate, and she absolutely made more of it than anyone I can ever imagine would have made of those careers. And those are huge clients for us. And the work they put into the world is so important. Um, so she's not taking on, I don't think she's taking on very many people now, but I believe she's still open to queries. Um, if you go to our website, to the submission page, she has a special email address for queries. Um, and because she grew up at our company mining the slush pile for gold and treasures, as she says, I think she still wants to find a few more. <laughs> oh, I know she's really looking for a new novelist right now. Just kind um, of crazy at this point, but on the other hand, <laughs> these geniuses need great representation. <laughs> <laughs> and then Sarah Crow, it, she came to us about, hmm, I think she came four years ago, and she had a fully developed list. Um, but I had this idea that I wanted to have three Batman in the cockpit, not just me and Elena. And we each have, um, I'm so lucky you got me when I'm in my apartment. I have all my choice. So we each have one of these Batman paperweights. I love it. <laughs> because the I've ever seen. <laughs> I got this on Etsy. This super cool artist makes these by hand. Um, so Sarah, Lena, and I each have one. And Sarah's our other bat person. And her client list is 
quite full, but she um, she finds it harder to resist taking on new people than Elena and I do. So <laughs> she might be as uh, it might say close to queries, but she can't. Um, she's an incredibly voracious reader. She can't go to bed without reading a novel, and um, so she's a possibility. And then we have the other people on the team are um, Ashley Valentine. She started as our assistant, and she did that for, I think, three and a half years. And now she, her title is art manager, and we're still like defining that role. Um, but she's an artist herself. She came from the Eric Carl Museum. And her, um, what makes her happy in life is to amplify artistic voices. And so she does spotlights on our artists and she meets with art directors and editors right now virtually, but um, in the future it'll be back in our conference room. And her sole um, responsibility is to amplify our artists. And then um, Cameron Chase came to us from Little Brown two years ago, and he is our subsidiary rights manager. And um, he just got a promotion, but he doesn't get to do it until he hires someone under him. So he's actively taking applications for to be um, an assistant sub rights manager. And that means it'll be someone who works with him doing our foreign deals, our live stage deals, our audio deals, our merchandise deals, and our permission deals. And they'll be reporting directly to him. Um, and it's a great chance to join our team. And I know he's just beginning to interview in person. So if there are any geniuses out there who live in New York who it is, it's not a virtual job. I mean, it won't be in, as of the fall. So you'd have to be able to come to our office. Um, he's a great person to work for. And we so we do have this opening. If you're interested in publishing, move to New York, esteemed audience. Mm -hmm. The opening sounds worth it. <laughs> yeah, it's such a great, I mean, but you have to like, you know, I'm an introvert, so I could work alone all day or I could work among a few people, but I, I was never someone who liked to hang out at the water cooler and chit chat when I was in big corporations. Um, so if your personality is that you want a lot of socializing at the water cooler or it, among a whole bunch of different people, it's not for you. But if you like kind of a more boutique atmosphere where you can have really good friends and colleagues, but only six of them, you can go to the fourth floor together and get your tea and coffee. Um, then it's for you. But if you're if you want a more corporate atmosphere, you know, where we work, you can Oh, you can wear whatever you want, but if you want to wear jeans, it's fine. Wear, as long as it's not like super slumpy stuff. Um, so it's a pretty casual atmosphere, um, but one where you can learn so much. And then our, our 
Um, and then, so, yeah. And then Rakim Nelson, he joined us as our assistant last February when Ashley, so Ashley moved up to be our art manager. So there is a lot of room to move up in the company. Um, it's not like a, there's not really any ceilings if you love it. So um, Rakim joined us and then right after, one month later, the pandemic hit. And so all of his training has been kind of virtual. And he comes in at this point, everybody goes in one or two days a week, but we try to alternate because we're all waiting to be doubly vaccinated. Um, I'm about to get my second. Everyone's had their, yeah, everyone's had their first. And then we're gonna like try to go back to how we were before. Um, it's a hard year to stay connected and, you know, we all, like, I started not doing Zoom at all. I only do phone calls now because um, I did this as an exception for you. I appreciate you. <laughs> I hate seeing my face in the, I'm like, oh, did I wash my hair too? <laughs> Please, can I not look at my face again? Um, so anyway, that's how, does that answer your question? It does. It gives us kind of a, a bird's eye view of how uh, Pippin Properties works. And I should shamelessly point out that esteemed audience can get a seven-question written interview with Sarah Crow. And uh, she was Elena Mecklin at the time she did the interview. Uh, but both of those are available at uh, uh, middlegreatninja.com exclusively, of course. Oh, that's uh, good. If anyone well, I've always loved the name of your... I mean, I think that's the reason I first did an interview with you, because I thought the name of your... Website was so good. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you very it's much. Really, it's a great name. I was like, oh, it doesn't sound like anybody else. It has done well uh, over the over the years. I I always joke that that's the decision in publishing I've made. I put the least amount of thought in. It was just like, oh, it's available, great. And then uh, <laughs> years later, uh, still 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 repping the brand. Really, who uh, who wouldn't want to do an interview with Middle Grade Ninja? I mean. I'm sorry? That's kind of how it works. Who wouldn't want to do an interview with Middle Grade Ninja? Yeah, so far. Um, and hopefully that uh, that good that good fortune will continue. But I always say if it doesn't, well, didn't we have a wonderful time right up until it stopped? So either way, <laughs> it'll be a good time. Right. So, talking uh, about this idea of a fantastic representation, you just showed us the tale of Despero, too, I assume, is the, the title of that manuscript you're looking forward to reading uh, this weekend. No, it's not. It's a YA manuscript. Okay, fair enough. I, 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 do very, I represent very little YA, but the ones I represent are very much worth reading. Are you going to be providing editorial feedback once you're done with it? And also, were you helping along the way producing it? How involved are you up to the, the contract, which you're going to negotiate amazingly, so that when the book becomes a bestseller, they'll know that it's a fantastic contract and they're, they're going to get everything that's due to them? How, how involved are you up to this point in the manuscript? This one, I'm one of the first readers because... Um, but I'm not always that. It depends on, um, and this, uh, this book is actually already contracted for, but it's been a while coming. Um, so I'm, you know, 
A lot of clients value my editorial input. It depends on the relationship with their editor, um, but I'm here for, you know, our agency charges 15% and some people never ask me to read anything and some people I read things five times for and I'm just here for whatever anybody needs. And I, I never say, it's never too much because it all evens out, right? So in this case, I'm a very early reader. Gotcha. Uh, and then, um... Well, with uh, with a book that's maybe not already that where you've just negotiated the contract, are you going to continue to be involved with the author, or do you step back and kind of let the editor do or do what they do? How what's what's your level of involvement at that point? Well, generally, after I've given any advice the author wanted or asked requested of me, once the editorial process fully commences. I try not to be involved um, because it's really hard to have two voices, right? Um, however, my authors know that if they are receiving feedback that doesn't seem like the right feedback to them or they have they don't agree with that or they want a second opinion they can always come to me um but generally once once they move on from me i i try to stay out of it because i think it's really hard to have two different editorial guiding lanterns um but if they come back to me and they aren't they feel like they're not sure they're getting the best advice or they disagree with their editor, then I'm, I'm always happy to weigh in. But I, I think it's hard. I mean, because I'm an author too, it's it would be hard to get two different sets of notes when one of them is from your publisher who's going to publish your book. And if it's just your critique committee or that's different, but when it's a book that's already sold, contracted for, and you trust your editor, then I, I never want to be at odds with the editor. Um, but there have been occasions where I've stepped in and taken on a battle if I didn't agree with the notes, but very rarely. And then will you be helping um, with the uh, continued promotion of the book? Um, or will you refer uh, your author to trusted publicists and other folks that can help with that? You know, that depends. Some publishers are very, and it depends how well known the author is. With certain key authors, you never have to worry that they're going to get everything they need for the book. You know, when you're when your sales are strong enough that a publisher is counting on your new book for their budget, you really don't have to worry about marketing because if they don't sell the number of copies they budgeted for, then they are. But, you know, most people aren't in that category. So I think the people who 
have the most trouble right now for new authors. It's really hard to get marketing. Um, in the pandemic, discoverability has been difficult. There are no live events to speak of. Um, so those people we advocate for as much as we can, um, but we don't have our own like, marketing department, right? We know what has worked for a lot of our clients, a lot of people with new, newer, but a lot of people who aren't as well known. And we share all the information we can and we make calls and advocate, but um, you know, you can't, it's very difficult to force a publisher to spend money if they're not getting a big response from for the book from their sales group. Um, so I'd say we do we do a lot, but we can't make your book a bestseller. You say that, and yet your client list suggests to me that, <laughs> that maybe, maybe there is a way you can do that. <laughs> maybe we're doing more than others. I don't. I mean, I have no idea what other um, agencies do. I mean, we do a lot, and we also, you know, it's in our best interest for everyone we've taken on to have really good sales. Nobody wants to have a lackluster sales track, but sometimes you can't control. So you do all you can, but you cannot guarantee someone's gonna have a strong sale. You can do everything you can do. And then sometimes you have to accept, maybe it's not that one, maybe it's your next one. And you have to, you have to be able to read the room, I guess. And you know, if things aren't happening for the book that's coming out, that season, sometimes it's better to save your energy for that person's next book. You know, you have to you have to be able to read the room. I had a kind of a burning question for you. I have lots of burning questions for you. We won't get to all of them, um, but I had uh, I've listened a couple of times to a talk you gave uh, about there is no GPS, uh, and in it. You give the advice, and this is this is a few years ago now uh, that I'm bringing up. But you say, if you want security, how? Why do you want to be an artist? Uh, which is a quote that I, I just seized on because I think you know somebody signs with Pippin Properties like, oh, this is it. This is my golden ticket. Uh, I'm going to the chocolate the chocolate factory. It's, it's all going to open up for me. Uh, <laughs> and then and then there's a and, and then there's you telling them that if you want security, why do you want to be an artist? So uh, I, I'm fascinated by this idea. How can artists both uh, thrive uh, and and take the big chances and, and and go for success, but also you know eat regular, own a decent car, more than two pairs of pants, all that kind of stuff. You know, I used to tell, I used to like be super happy when I represented people who made all of their, made enough to live on with just their writing or their drawing. And I don't feel that way anymore because what I saw over time was everybody has fancy periods and less fancy periods where you have your, periods where you're super popular and then your sales might dip and then they might come back. And I started to feel that if 
you're relying on your artistic endeavors to make your living, you might have to compromise, right? And just write some stuff to sell it. And then that's more like having a regular job, right? Like the idea is, oh, you have a story or a message or something you want to communicate to the world and you decide to communicate it through writing or drawing. And those are usually the books that stand the test of time. Um, otherwise you could say, oh, I'm going to do something funny this time. I'm going to do something this this time. I'm going to do something this this And then you end up working really hard just to make ends meet. And so I guess now I feel like it's perfectly fine to have a day job and to write in your spare time and to draw in your spare time. Or if you've like made enough money from having some big successes to sock it away and like keep doing those things. But I don't, you never want to be in a place where you're like, oh my God, I have to sell something to pay my rent. It's probably not going to be that good, right? It's probably not going to be. Then it's like a job. And I feel like art should always be a way of expressing something that you need to get out. At least, at least for me, it is. This is it's. You want something to be have significance and be meaningful, and I. I think if you're depending on earning a dollar, that's really hard. That's a, some people can do it, but that's a very hard mix of ingredients, right? So you don't want to be sitting at home like, oh, what am I possibly going to write that's going to bring me money to pay the rent? That doesn't feel like making art. That's just a different kind of writing life. I've met some writers that can pull it off, but not many. Uh, and certainly, yeah. I think most writers would be much happier having art time and pay the bills time be be separate. Or if you have a big bestseller, stock all the money away. And then you just, I think you want to be in an atmosphere where you don't have to. And then that makes you do it, right? But if you don't want to be on a hamster wheel churning out more books to pay bills, I just I think that's a hard. I mean, if someone can do that, I say good for them. Um, but it's got to. I mean, as a writer myself, it's got to be hard to. It's got to be a hard road to hoe, right? I would imagine so. Uh, fortunately, I haven't I haven't been in that uh, position as of yet. Uh, yeah. So no, yeah. So no, I'm no longer pushing for people who can make all their money. Um, but you know, it's if you can, I'm so happy for you. And I do have a lot of clients who can. Um, but I don't want someone who can't to try and get stuck. Working really hard to make things to pay their bills because the stuff usually doesn't come out very good. 
I'm watching our time, and I know that we're we're coming right up to the end. Of, where does it go? It always it always goes away so fast. There are I've got about uh, three questions uh, left for you, and then we can call it a night. Is that reasonable? Sure. Because uh, I've got two questions that I that I that I ask everybody. Uh, esteemed audience knows I'm going to ask uh, Holly McGee. Have you ever seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? <laughs> I have seen a ghost. I haven't seen a flying saucer and ghost together. Fair enough. Can you tell us about the ghost you saw? Sure. Yeah, in high school, um, every weekend, we, my friends and I would drive up to Star Hill, which is near my parents' house, probably about eight miles, and we would walk, park, sit in the car, possibly, I'm not saying yes or no, have a few drinks and watch for the ghost of Star Hill, which emerged as this like kind of light that would come if you sat there quietly long enough. And I saw the ghost of Star Hill a few times. Cool. And I assume this is something that people can, can go and, and, and have mm -hmm. that experience as well. Yes, they can. They can. They can email me if they want directions. It's a long drive, and they might get lost because none of the roads are labeled. Um, but I, I, my, my family and I would be happy to provide directions. I love the idea that this interview hits, and then your inbox is no longer queries. It's just nothing but requests for directions to go see the ghost. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you mentioned queries. Is anyone who does want to query me after hearing me ramble all this time, which I'm guessing nobody will, um, that I have a special query inbox, which can be found on our submission page. And Elena also has one. So just head to pippinproperties.com. Yeah. And please don't write to my, I have an author website and I request on there that people don't send queries to that because I try to have a place for my own work that's separate from Pippin. <laughs> and I don't love to get queries to my author website. And I ask people not to do it, but I can't stop them. What's that? <laughs> Well, maybe you can. Here's an author with boundary issues. Reject, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, hey, if you can't read my requests, then that's not a good start to our relationship. Another question that I make it my business to ask every publishing professional I've, I've had on the show. Um, I want to ask about diversity in publishing because we are seeing it improve. We've still got a long ways to go. So my question is simply, what is Pippin Properties doing and what are you seeing publishing overall doing to make sure that we're increasing the amount of diverse books on our shelves? Well, I think that um, the, the report that Lee and Lowe Books did was very eye-opening to everybody. I know at Pippin we started our African-American Creatives Grant after that, which we do every year now. We did our first one last year, and it's a $6,000 grant. Um, there's no stipulation on how to spend the money. Um, it's to help in whatever way you need help. And we last year, we 
chose an artist and the um of all the entries the finalists are chosen by the three youngest people at Pippin, you know, Rakim, Ashley, and Cameron, and then the finalist, the winner is chosen by the three top people at Pippin, Sarah, Alina, and I. We started that. We started some initiatives to really f diversify our client list. Um, and I think I've made a lot of progress in that area. And I think publishers in general, from what I've seen, was sort of like a slap in the face. Like you, this isn't going to change unless we make it change, right? And I've I've seen like big movements toward diversifying everybody's list and the need for authors and artists and um, who represent voices um, that haven't been represented strongly enough. So I've, no I've noticed a very big shift in that direction. Um, and even in our hiring, we are looking, you know, to find those people to make our company more diverse too. Uh, and then uh, my final question is always about uh, advice for writers. But because it's you, and because I am convinced that I have yet to fully unlock the secret of how you spot amazing talent, but I know there's got to be a, I don't know if uh, if you just get like a, a feeling that other people don't get, like a like a spider sense tingling uh, when you when you when you come across a particular writer's work. Um, but what are the qualities of a writer that you would be interested in signing and working with? And what are qualities of a writer that you know are going to be hurtful and they're going to set them aside? And it's intentionally as broad and open a question as I could possibly make it because I want to know. Tell me how to be a better writer, the kind that's going to work at Pippin Properties. <laughs> oh, oh, gosh. I, I mean, that's hard. I mean, I... I I don't, I rarely like anything I read. So I am just, I was just born that way. But if I like something, I like it way more than I love it. So if I, if I love something, I have to take it, right? But I don't like most things I read and I've, I've always been that way. Um, so for me, but I'm, you know, Elena's, you'd you, well, you, you should have Elena and Sarah back on your show because I can't speak for them. For me, I, um, like I think about some of my favorite books and they were, they were books that I related to the characters because of where I was in my life. And it's always like that for me. It's like, am I and I'm, I think I'm selfish that way, right? So it's sort of, it's a little intelligent. It's, oh, this per, this character is speaking to me where I am right now. And it's it's been that way with every every best-selling client I have. It's, it's, it's the same formula. Um, but I can give you some more, you know, and, and I tend to like very dark stories. Um, I'm not like a light and fluffy reader or person. I, you'll never see me do chit chat with anybody. It's going to be 
if we meet for coffee, it's we're getting in there, right? We're not we're not talking about the weather because I just don't do that. I I can't. I wish I could. I can't. So this is my taste is the same in books. Um, but I would say there's something I've been thinking about lately. Um, I am an extremely hard worker, extremely diligent, extremely responsible. If I ever call a client a minute later than I said I would, they know something's wrong. That's a type of, that's just my way in the world. And it's not like that for everybody, but I've learned to embrace who I am. And I, if I tried to call you five minutes late, it would cause me extreme anxiety because I'm ready exactly when I'm supposed to be ready. So there's that, but I also, I don't want to work harder than my client. So if I ever find that I'm pulling for something harder than they are, I lose interest, right? You have, you, the agent never wants to feel like they're doing all the work for whatever the product is. Like if I give you a round of editorial notes, I want you to take them and I don't want to see it for a few weeks. I don't, I don't want to get that back in an hour. It took me an hour to write the notes, <laughs> right? So, so that matters. People who are patient and willing to like do what it takes to have a better result, not be in a hurry, but play the long game and most likely win it. Um, that's really important. Um, people who respect my boundaries, understand um, I'm not, this isn't the only thing I do. I have a family too. People who are funny and kind, appreciative, crazy talented, but please don't ask me to work harder than you're willing to work. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media, all that good stuff? Um, so I do have, um, so let's start with Pippin. So Pippin Properties, the agency has a Twitter account. Um, it's at Love the Pippins. We have Instagram, Pippin Properties, and we have Facebook, Pippin Properties. And then my personal, which I, if uh, there's a book, a Pippin book, I just can't resist posting. I do, but it's a little more personal than just Pippin. Um, so I have Twitter is Holly M. McGee. Instagram is the same. And Facebook is just Holly McGee. 
And I should, of course, remind esteemed audience that What the World Could Make uh, launches this week. If you're listening to us in the future, by God, it's already available. Go get it. Uh, and if it's not yet May 4th of 2021, you can attend the, the launch party at 5 p.m. You're going to be there. KT Camillo is going to be there. Your illustrator is going to be there. It's going to be an amazing time. I'm going to be there. Uh, I'll be quietly watching, but I'll be there. It's going to be an extraordinary uh, steamed audience. And you get, you'll get to see my special pants that I bought because when I thought it wasn't going to be virtual, but I'm going to wear them. Do they have some sort of bunny or rabbit type quality to them? I know you're not willing to spoil the pants exactly. Um, absolutely not. They're just really good. The stream will be satisfied. Uh, as always, for uh, thousands of interviews with uh, publishing professionals, authors, all the world's best people, head to middlegradeninja.com. It will change your life. Download your free copy of Magic Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. And God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.